श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जय श्री हरि नाम प्रभु की जय गौर भक्त वृंद की जय गौ प्रेम आनंदे Good evening everyone. Welcome. Thank you for hosting me here. Much appreciated. This is my last talk I'll be giving since having come to North Carolina on what was it Wednesday? Arrived Tuesday night, I think. So we've been speaking pretty much morning and evening different parts of the state. And this is our final gathering some of you have been with me throughout and some of you I've seen in these parts before when I visited here this area in the past I've seen you our good host Madhavasit at Drista's house of course in the past and some new faces too so nice to meet you nice to be with all of you I had been asked to speak something about perhaps religious pluralism and um something along the lines of inter interfaith um discussion something about sacrifice was it sacrifice wisdom and love in the world's religions I guess I could say in brief if there was more sacrifice love and wisdom in the world's religions exemplified by the practitioners then the world would be much more religious <laughs> than it is today those are the missing parts of many uh of the lives of many religious practitioners but I don't think they're missing in the core tenets of all of the major religions and i think that uh, one of the reasons that we find an absence or a lacking of these important things in some of the major lives of many of the practitioners of the major religions of the world is that there are really two expressions of religious life across the board across uh, various cultures um within i want to say all religions all the different major religions and i like to refer to them as really a religious orientation and an experiential orientation one the religious orientation should lead to the latter an experiential uh orientation to the mystical you will heart of religion but it they don't always do that so um and there's a reason for that and the reason really revolves around the nature of our material conditioning if you will our uh by material conditioning to put it in a more general term i mean the fact that we are 
conditioned to to uh, to take, if you will. Hmm? We feel that um, by acquiring, we will be more whole. Hmm? And nothing could be further from the truth. Um, it is rather by letting go of things that we can come to know more about ourselves. As I've said before, the best things in life are not things. So we are the best things in life. And we're not a thing, an object, but we are a particle of the subjective reality of consciousness that really gives meaning to the world of matter, to the objective world. But um, we're small, nonetheless, and so we find ourselves often overcome by the demands of the world. Um, We are masked by the face of matter, and we've identified as consciousness only has the power to do with things, with matter. And uh, this is at a great cost. It is at the cost, and practically, for all intents and purposes, loss of the self. The self is, by contrast, uh, a giver, a unit of giving capacity. And um, so taking is diametrically opposed to its, to its nature. We nonetheless have, are preoccupied with this taking. Darwin put it in, in a nice way when he said that the world constitutes a survival of the fittest, doesn't it? So this is kind of a, as conjures up, at least in my mind, some, some meanness, and maybe perhaps not necessarily so, but um but um living in, in in competition with others for the over the uh, the the uh, available resources is what i mean by a preoccupation with taking if you will and uh the very well our identification with with matter in the form of the body and so forth which has needs finds us in that uh, condition and distance thereby or that extent from our heart, from our self. This is a a dualistic, if you will, worldview. There's a difference, and this is a basic religious worldview, a difference between consciousness and matter. Hmm? I happened to be in a bookstore some some quite some time ago, not that long ago, I guess within the last year or so, year and a half, and picked up a book that stuck, stuck out to me called End of Faith. It's a f- book by Sam Harris, who's a famous atheist, articulate and thoughtful, and, uh, and in many ways a very um, upright person. Um, but it was a veritable assault on religion and whatnot. But the, I opened the book to, you know, at random, 
and uh, was near the end of the book, and he was writing there about mysticism after he had gone at some length on and on about religion and its problems and so forth. He spoke about uh, mysticism and how it was appeared to him to be somewhat different from religion and that it was um, rational. It's an interesting comment, but at any rate, I thought that the whole thing is caved in here at the end because uh, he's spoken really about the heart of of, uh, of religion, which is mystical if you want. It may not be a popular word in some religious traditions, but the experience of the subjective reality of the self is it's mystical. It's, it's not um, something that we can measure, hmm? measure, engage, and and control. Hmm? A lot of religious talk about this soul of times gone by is thought to be rather superstitious and mythological and so forth, and certainly myths have been invoked, and uh, there are some superstitious ideas in in uh, of the past, uh, whether it be for religious or the secular world. Um, but... <clears throat> At the same time, it may be more accurate if we are going to talk about that which is beyond speech, if we are to think about that which is beyond mind, to talk about it in a, in a, in a poetic language, to put it to a song, perhaps, this, uh, this type of expression, poetry and song, they seek to, in, in many ways, help us See the, uh, the, uh, the enlarge things, if you will. Hmm? Look at the world as a world of more possibilities, perhaps, than we might think otherwise through a language that lends itself more to control, like, like math, for example. It's a descriptive language, no doubt, but it's very much lends itself to being used for controlling and mastering things and so forth. Poetry is more of a, a more of a participatory language to participate in life and and um, and think about possibilities that don't perhaps appear to be such hmm? that the moon would have wings and and fly across the sky and so forth. But the ancients have used this kind of language, especially in India, to talk about the nature of being and the nature of the world and so forth. Um, po- a poetic language. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't... It, it may be a, a better way, so to say, to talk about the essence of life, the essence of the world, and in as much as it is, it is, according to the religious perspective, beyond our grasp, not something that we control. I mean... We were speaking just the other day of uh, Brian Greene's book that uh, I guess recently came out about what is it called, Mindful Universe or something like that. Hmm? Hidden Reality. I guess Mindful Universe is one of his earlier books that um, hit the New York Times bestseller list. And this is about more about string theory and the multiverse conception that this is one universe amongst zillions of them that has, what, 500 billion galaxies, each of which has 500 billion stars, that, that constitutes more 
stars and galaxies and there are grains of sand on all the beaches and isn't it all the deserts throughout our speck of dust known as the earth so <laughs> so he, the uh, recent reviewer of the um, of the book whose article was published on our website the harmonist was quoted the, the Gita and he said here we go we're going full circle here now back to the thought what we thought was retired the superstitious uh, uh, for example he went to the 11th chapter of the Gitas the uh, Vishvarup Darshan hmm? uh, 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 experience of Arjuna and the, the multiverse and so forth and he was explaining how the book speaks mathematically uh, about a world, the world we live in, in a very similar way to which it's described poetically in the Gita, for example, in that uh, section. So, so again, we we we, we there is a there is a, a mystical uh, aspect of life, and it's it's us. I mean, we're a mystery. Let's face it. <laughs> What we are, what is the the meaning of our existence? What is its purpose? And so, but these are the questions that arise in human life very prominently. I like to think of human life itself as an existential crisis, and um, it's when it's a time when consciousness realizes that it exists, not that it doesn't exist in other forms of life, but it's not aware of itself, so to speak. Nature realizes it has a soul. In human life, that's a very extraordinary time then. And the soul, the self, the atma, consciousness is kind of born then in less complex forms of life. Of course, I'm going in a very Hindu direction here. Is uh, uh, the, the self is, is still kind of in the womb of material nature. Hmm? In other words, when we comparatively, to use the metaphor, are in the womb, we don't know the most part that we exist to the extent that we do once we take birth and grow and so forth. So in less complex forms of life we find consciousness. We don't find the self-consciousness not to the same extent as we do in human society. But there's a lot we have in common nonetheless. Consciousness in other forms of life feels pain hmm? more or less depending on the form of life. Hmm? It may not be self-conscious. It may not have philosophy, but as you go up the scale, if you will, we find more more common ground with consciousness as it is manifest in other forms of life with consciousness in human form of life than not, which might lead us to believe, as the Indian sages thought, that it's the same thing, but it's just in a different vehicle and not that well suited because of the vehicle to express itself fully. So I like to think of it as I am at the moment, of consciousness being in the womb still, and human life is is that it, it takes birth. It, it's it 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 has the opportunity to fully express itself, and it starts by questioning itself: Do I exist? To what extent do I exist? Do I exist? I feel like there's more to me than what meets the eye. There's a more. There's a and there's a meaning. There's a there's a some deeper purpose to life. Practically every human being feels like this intuitively. I know intuition could be wrong, but when the collective human intuition intuition all feels the same way, we should give it a little more credibility. Hmm? 
If you're driving down the road and Drista has an intuition, I think we should turn left, we might take it or leave it. Hmm? Right? But if everybody in the car emphatically says, I feel the same way too, then we might well go, <laughs> might go that way. Still could be wrong, it's possible. Hmm? Hmm? The collective human society feels each individual human that uh, this 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 sense to one extent or another. So it has to be given a lot of uh, consideration. Hmm? Um, and this is in a very kind of basic sense what um, I think all the religious traditions are speaking about. There's more to life, isn't it, than what, than what meets the eye. And we are the more in one sense in as much as, well, let's talk in a Christian direction. We're a soul. Hmm? In Christianity, we find that the humans have souls. It's not thought that the animals have souls, I suppose. Hmm? In some forms of Christianity, there's a lot of them out there. Hmm? Um, maybe or- Origin was his name? He might have thought that, but I think he was excommunicated. But these days, he could have been reinstated. <laughs> There's a church on every block, right? With the Protestant Revolution, any any Christian who could read the Bible and start a church. There you go. So, uh, at any rate, the idea, I think, uh, in, in Christianity is that human life is special. It's a unique opportunity. Hinduism, by comparison, would would readily agree human life is a great opportunity. This is the opportunity to know yourself completely, know your entire potential, because in human life, when you have this existential crisis, who am I, why am I, what is my purpose, there's an answer to it that's available. We look at other forms of life, we see there's consciousness there, to some extent they feel pain or or pleasure, and we see that in terms of their animality, for example, in the animal kingdom, they have needs. They have a need to eat, they have a need to sleep, they have a need to mate. They have a concern for defending themselves. And each species has a built-in system. Nature has built in a system that they can pretend them, protect themselves to an extent, just as we can to an extent. They can, they can, they can, they have a, they know what to eat. They know how to sleep and they know how to mate. Things that we're pretty confused about, although we're more complex. Um, but they don't have this kind of question that we have. They don't question, why am I? They're not troubled by philosophy and burdened by, by intelligence. Um, so there's a, there's a, there's a obvious difference. Whether that consciousness in the animal form of life eventually evolves to human form of life, well, different religions may think about it differently, but here's some common ground. Hinduism agrees with Christianity that human life is special, and the speciality of it from Hindu perspective is that these questions arise, and I think in one sense this is true from a Christian perspective too, these questions arise, and both schools say there's an answer to the question. And the answer doesn't come from nature alone. It doesn't come from nature alone because it's not a material question. 
It's a question of consciousness. Consciousness is asking the question. Questions can only be asked by consciousness, hmm? not by matter. Hmm? Consciousness can ask the question. Consciousness is asking the question. In human life, we have material needs, hmm? but nature has a system built in to meet those needs, just like nature has a system to meet the needs of other forms of life. The skunk has his tail that he can rise hmm, to defend himself, the tiger his teeth and speed and so forth, the deer his, her agility and, and, uh, and, and so on, hmm, uh, for defending themselves. As I say, what to eat, it's very clear in other forms of life, what, how to sleep, how to mate. Hmm. We, our material side, has these same issues. And nature readily answers them. Hmm? Why are we confused about them? Because we don't preoccupy ourselves with the bigger question, why am I? Hmm? And uh, the, the consciousness question. My point being, if hu- human beings, if this question arises in human consciousness, it's so extraordinary of a question, and it's so different from what all the other, all the other, all other forms of life are are questioning about, if at all questioning, hmm? humans should be preoccupied with it. Hmm? That preoccupation with it, with consciousness, which is what human life uh, should be preoccupied with, will then indirectly, or as a byproduct of that preoccupation, the material needs will be answered. And all the saints in all the traditions have showed this. They became preoccupied with this question and their material needs were met. They were solved. And they found they needed less. They found they didn't find it by adding something on, that by taking they would be more. They found that by giving their their, their sense of self expanded. So where does the answer come from? In other words, if this is this is not an objective question, a question coming from nature, from matter, this is a subjective question coming from consciousness. So the answer can't come from matter. Where will it come from then? Hmm? This is revelation. It comes from above. It comes from a greater consciousness. Hmm? If there's consciousness that animates my material self, my body, there's, then we posit, as well, consciousness behind the whole of matter. Hmm? We have a source, a conscious source. This, this the idea, then, the concept of revelation. In the, in the, in the West, we have the, 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 the revelation of the Old Testament, the New Testament. We have the, the, the Quran, um, uh, to, to cite a, a couple in the East, Far East. In India, we have the Upanishads, perhaps the oldest form of, Revelation. We have theology there in the form of the Vedanta Sutra and further writings and so forth. We have theology in the West. So theology is writing about revelation. I mean, it exists. Revelation is there in the world. It doesn't come from matter. Hmm? It talks about the nature of matter hmm? and how matter gets in the way, can get in the way of human 
the human, the appropriate human pursuit of understanding the self, consciousness, the why of life. Hmm? The why question, more important than the how question. Hmm? The how questions, how to eat, how to sleep, these will fall into place if we answer the why question. Hmm? And this is how to answer the question. It's too big for us to answer. Hmm? It's too big for us. But of course, as time has gone on, this this is the old world view. The new world view has started to change in in in, in Europe, and and the the why questions, which were always uh, tied to revelation and the answers to them, the, the theologizing about theology means, as I say, to kind of philosophize about revelation, what it means, what its significance is, and so on and so forth. Gradually, in the West, then. Philosophy became divorced from uh, revelation, and then you have materialistic philosophy, and still the questions are asked. Hmm? But um, many people say that Western philosophy has ended up bankrupt, actually, hmm? uh, at this point. And uh, <laughs> um, it Remains credible, I suppose, in in some circles, circles where there's still more is being provided, more things are being provided. The illusion, the things, and acquiring them will make us more and better, still persists. Hmm? Science is not a demon. It was born as a Christian, actually. Modern science, as we know it in the world, it was was born as a Christian in Europe, and. Uh, Many great Christians thought that uh, with the help of the Western revelation of the Christ, the pagan miracles were small in comparison to someone rising from the dead that could be retired. And then when science came to be wedded with, with Christianity, they thought that this would be the tool then that we demonstrate you know, once and for all conclusively that... Um, their uh, you know, religious ideology is um, is the, uh, the, the is the answer, um, but it, things got out of control, <laughs> I guess, and science went its went its own way as it started to bring more things than religion. Hmm? Religion didn't solve the bubonic bubonic plague, but uh, but uh, but. Uh, Medicine did, and, uh, and other problems were solved, and more things were gathered, and uh, our material lives appeared to be enhanced by uh, science in the hands of, of technology. Science is really neutral, so just how you use the facts that you gather is, uh, determines who, who, the outcome. So science in the hands of technology for improving the material condition has worked pretty well, and so we're very much still, in many respects, chasing after the carrot of material acquisition in terms of that being the solution to all the problems. And religion hasn't solved all of our material problems, it doesn't appear, but again, religion is talking about a way of solving the problems, and one of the ways is to use a Zen term that less is more. Hmm? You might want to think about that. 
less is more. I mean, this is obviously sounds irrational, hmm? but life is not really doesn't really answer to reason either. Hmm? We do experience that by giving we get much more than by taking. Well, that gain is somewhat invisible. Hmm? I, I cannot hold up. Look what I got for giving, and if I really give, I wouldn't want to anyway. Because hmm? the more I give less I attach getting to it, and the more I'm giving, and the more I actually gain, and I feel fuller and more satisfied, and people can see it in me, and it's mysterious. What is it about you that makes you attractive? And you have nothing. I told, alluded, alluded to the story this morning of the Bhagavatam. It's the story of a, of a king who is cursed to die in seven days. And so he goes to the bank of the sacred river, the Ganges in India, and he, 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 here's the king, the emperor, really. He was the emperor. So he had many kingdoms under him. He went to the bank of the Ganges. And, you know, if you heard President Obama just went to the Hudson River to, you know, he was cursed to die. He's going to sit there and fast until death. And he's now pondering, you know, what is the meaning of life and what is, what, what is the thing to do with death? then people from all over the world would come and it would be a big news article and they'd have a webcam there, you know. <laughs> Everybody would be watching. So without that kind of technology, still somehow other people from all over came, from all different traditions, all offering some idea what to do to the king. And suddenly out of the forest came a naked boy, 16-year-old boy, naked. And everyone in all the different religious and philosophical disciplines, they thought, Oh, he knows the answer. Because after all, the 16-year-old boy, you know, anybody have a 16-year-old boy? You've had one. You've been one. Or a girl. It's a pretty wild time. You know, it's, your senses are pretty strong at that time. Youth makes us feel like we could do anything. Hmm? And the youth is very valuable. Everybody wants it. The corporations want it. The military wants it. Uh, old people want it. <laughs> Only young people don't understand the value of it hmm? and misuse it. And of course, how we use our our opportunity, if you will, of youth determines how wealthy we will become in years to come, in age. So it's a difficult time. And so parents are pressed to try to help their adolescent children, you know, to harness that adolescence, that adolescent energy. So here was a boy, he was naked. He was completely controlled, was the idea. He had no, he, the, the implication of his nakedness was he had no attraction to worldliness, to acquiring things. Hmm? He was oblivious to worldly concerns. They realized he has solved the problem of death because the problem of death in one sense is that we can't take anything with us. and We're attached to things, and so it becomes problematic for us. Of course, every religion teaches this, hasn't it? And you can't take it with you. Hmm? What profiteth a man if he inherits the entire world, right? But loses his soul. And such inheritance or such acquisition, to whatever extent, is, as I said earlier, to one extent or another, at the cost of knowing oneself, one's soul. Hmm? They, they could see. He, he solved the death problem. He should, how did he do that? He should be talked to. Hmm? What, what was it? How did he go about that? How did he arrive at this position of not wanting anything? Hmm? 
And, of course, as he began to speak, it became apparent he arrived at not wanting anything by wanting only one thing, hmm? God. Hmm? By wanting only one thing. Hmm? There wasn't really a thing, <laughs> in a sense. Hmm? It's the super-subjective. If our unit, ourself, as a unit of consciousness, is the subjective element hmm, in our lives, we have a psychic dimension and a, and a physical dimension that are objective to great, lesser, and greater degrees, respectively, and then we have consciousness. Of course, we, I should state, distinguish consciousness from mind also, whereas science of mind or Neuroscience may not at this point. The brain mind argument, the brain matter, what is it? Mind, mind, mind brain argument often identifies mind with consciousness. We further distinguish consciousness from mind. We see mind as a subtle form of matter and the body a gross form that consciousness, the self, communicates with gross matter through. Interesting concept. And there are then laws that govern mind as there are laws that govern matter. So we go to the, from the normal, if you will, <laughs> to the paranormal, and uh, and from there beyond, hmm? to what is spiritual, to the self, to pure subjectivity. But we're a unit of that. Hmm? So we're a part of that. We're a ray of the sun, of the whole, so to speak, a son or a daughter of, of God. These are just different words to explain the same idea. Hmm? So, they understood. He has understood. This boy has understood. He spoke, and this is what he spoke. A beautiful book, 18,000 poetic verses. And it all constitutes a preoccupation with God to the extreme. And how that brings about a death to the what I like to call the conventional ego. We have an ego, which means identity, as I'm using the term. We have an identity, materially. And our identity is largely uh, constructed of our desires. In other words, I want to live in North Carolina some of the time. Hmm? Anyway, say I want to live in North Carolina, so I, and I do, so I'm a North Carolinan. And I want to be married, so I'm a husband or a wife. You can't be a wife without being married. You can't, and hopefully you wouldn't do it if you didn't want to. <laughs> so if you, if you want a significant other, then you can be a wife or a husband. If you want a child, well, these days maybe you don't, but you have one. That's unfortunate. But if you want one, then you'll be a father. So our wants, our desires. You know, the, there's a lot of psychology into advertising, obviously. They make these beautiful ads with this car, and it's just, you know, they figured it out. There's a certain kind of people that are going to buy our car. There's a certain mindset out there, and we're going to make a car just for them. And so there he is. It's driving through the country, and, you know, it's crossing the river. As if people use their SUVs for that, really. They're just driving around to go to take kids to the soccer game and so forth. But they have this dream about themselves, you know. Oftentimes, we'll go out and drive in off-road, you know. Some people do, obviously. So the point being that they have a ma, that's my, that's me. Hmm? I'm a, you know, 
whatever a Prius because I'm politically correct and and uh, <laughs> environmentally sensible and you know responsible and and so on. So our wants, hmm, if you will, our my defines our I. We are a composite, that materially speaking, of so many desires. But the obvious point here, which the boy Sugadev demonstrated and was apparent to the to the sages when they saw him, is that what that an identity based on a sense of my mine is a false identity that cannot be maintained because nothing belongs to us. The Sukadev could understand nothing belongs to me. Time will take everything. So, and I like to reason that if with intelligence I can partially own things and try to own things, then that, if you want to call it time, that really owns all things, takes all things away, might have intelligence also. It's intelligent enough to own everything, more intelligent than us. So, in a kind of a philosophical way, if you will, some philosophical reasoning, we do posit consciousness to, in other words, time as it's sometimes described as the hand of God, hmm? saying nothing belongs to you. Nothing, I mean, nature is speaking so loudly to us, even at herself. We said we, nature couldn't answer the questions, but there's consciousness behind nature, so nature is set up in such a way as to indirectly answer the questions, the way she moves. So if you look carefully, that's why you see, if, for example, in the, in the Hindu text, they're personifying and animating even nature. Even nature is speaking and giving lessons and so forth, because it's been set up in such a way with consciousness behind it. So time, ayurharati vaipumsa mudhanastanja yonaso, Beautiful poem from Bhagavad. It says, Ayur Harati. Ayur means life. Ayur Harati. Ayur Harati by Pumsam. Not just some people, everybody. It's been a long time now, but still today, 100% of the people die. Right. Right. So it means ayur harati that everybody's life is being taken away. Ayur harati, everybody's life. And to illustrate this, they says it says ayur harati by pumsam ujjanastantrayana. So it's poetry, poetry with the rising and the setting of the sun. Hmm? Everyone's life is being taken away, as if the sun is like a big clock rising across the sky. And then you can say. Well, actually, Swami, the sun is not really rising across the sky, but the earth is moving like this, and it only appears that the, I said poetry may be a better way to describe things and get a handle on what's really happening. The point, sir, is your life is being taken away <laughs> with every day that goes by, whether it goes this way or the sun goes that way. And in, 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 in appearance, and it doesn't hurt us. What do you want to accomplish? People used to think that the world, if you will, revolved around the earth. They had food, right? They had families, they had happiness, and so forth. Now we know 
that it revolves around the sun, and there's math to prove it, I suppose, but who knows what else we'll find in the, uh, that, that, that the galaxy, the, this universe is moving around another one, or who can say? And then if we use that knowledge only to keep trying then hmm, to improve our material condition, which is ultimately the same aim of religion, which is to solve the death problem. In other words, if you keep trying to improve the condition, material condition, you want to prolong it, you want to, you know, there are immortalists within the scientific community trying to, you know, the old idea of freezing the body uh, is still around, and there are other ones out and about too. So the same goal is being sought by the secular and and by the religious. So uh, not much difference. People are after the same thing. Hmm? They want to live and they want to live they don't want to die. Let's put it like they want to live forever. They want an enduring life of happiness, and you cannot expect an enduring life of happiness when your life is based on attachment to things that don't endure. When your happiness is derived from things that, while here today, will be gone tomorrow. But we'll keep producing more things, and we'll keep things around long. Of course, they don't do that. They make cars that will break down sooner, hmm? and so on and so forth. So, so, hmm. so they knew the Sukadev. He solved the problem. Hmm? He solved the death problem. He doesn't want anything. Ayurharati vaipumsam udhanastam So with the rising and the setting of the sun. Our life is being taken away. Hmm? Then it says what? It says, except for everyone. Everyone. Everyone's life is being taken away with the rising and the setting of the sun, except for one. Who is that? Uttam Shloka Vartaya. It says, who's always Vartaya? Who's always speaking about Uttam Shloka? Uttam Shloka means, Shloka means verse, like poetry, and Uttam means the best. Uttam Shloka. With the choicest, best poetry, that, in, in other words, the best possible language. Hmm? As I said earlier, poetry seeks to expand the possibilities of life. It's a language that, that lends to someone who feels that the possibilities of life are greater than that which meets the eye. Hmm? They appear to be, there appear to be limitations, but it's consciousness that's not matter that is sensing there are other possibilities. Matter is saying, there's only so many possibilities. Hmm? Consciousness feels uh, being different from matter in constitution. Oh, there are other possibilities. Poetry is a language that these these rishis, the sages, they embraced hmm? to try to express this. They say, "What uttam shloka vartaya to speak hmm? about the one who's called uttam shloka? It's a name for God." Actually, hmm? it means who, who is, who if he is to be described, if God is to be described, if the absolute is to be described, there is uh, the, the choicest of words uh, uh, will be used, and the most, uh, the best words will be poetic words, which try to see he cannot be described by words. God is beyond words, so shall we be quiet then? 
if you cannot completely, if you cannot articulate in words what is God, the Bhagwat says, does that mean we should stop talking? No, we should never stop talking. Hmm? Some people think God is beyond words, so we'll be silent. Some religions think like, that's that's not a bad idea. I mean, but here's another idea. There's not enough that can be said. Hmm? So let us use a language where we can combine words in ways which they would not otherwise and don't always make sense or don't appear to, as in poetry. You think, what is it really saying? Hmm? Beyond words. So that person who is preoccupied with this kind of speech, hmm, for the rising and the setting of the sun, hand of time, his or her life is not being taken away. What's to be taken away? That person is preoccupied with 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 the Godhead, not with things. Things come, things go. That's been understood. So this is, again, not a particular religious doctrine. This is something at the heart of all religious teachings. That's why I say when Sam Harris said, oh, I think... Uh, this mysticism has value, and he was referring to the East, to, to to Hinduism, maybe to Buddhism, and so forth. And, and but Christianity doesn't have a different idea of that. Islam doesn't have a different idea of that. You have you are we have our mystics in in Islam, the Sufis, for example. We have uh, mystics in 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 Christianity, also great experiencers, many in the Catholic tradition. Many, some in also in Protestantism as well. Uh, uh, some did some study on that. Now some names are escaping me, but they're there. Hmm? Great thinkers, great experiencers, and they they demonstrate their experience. Hmm? That they're experiencing, they, they can give more because they have more hmm? of themselves. So, and in Hinduism as well. So, as I said earlier, there's two sides here to a religious orientation. There's a religious orientation. And there's a experiential orientation, the religious orientation where we adapt a particular religion. Why do we adopt a particular religion? Well, because we are susceptible to religion. It offers an answer to the existential crisis we have. Science offers, perhaps, or atheism, let's say, not science per se, but an interpretation of science. That, like naturalism, is a particular interpretation of scientific data that can't be demonstrated, but there's a fair amount of empiric evidence that can be brought up to give it credibility. Hmm? That's a view that says consciousness is matter, that consciousness can be reduced, the subjective element in our existence can be reduced to objectivity. Hmm? Ultimately, mind is brain, consciousness is brain. This is, of course, in the science of mind and philosophy of mind and neuroscience. They've been trying to do this for quite some time. I saw an interview of a, of a Christian gentleman uh, in this regard, and he said, "In the you know, in the, in the old world, it was always such that 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 consciousness was more important than things." Hmm? And he was, and then the, the interviewer said, "But that was before. <laughs> you know, now we know much more about consciousness." So he, he said, "Well, I think we know a lot more about things, but not about consciousness." Hmm? And if you study, actually. The current uh, attempts to understand consciousness as matter, the attempts to reduce brain to mind or 
to understand consciousness as non-material. Not all of them try to reduce it to mind entirely, but they still, the majority, like to try to make it matter. There's no supernatural. Hmm? When you study them, what you find in the field is what is called matter continues to expand hmm? in the language. Matter starts, to, that's what's the difference between you know, materialism, naturalism, physicalism. These are words that seek to expand the concept of matter that consciousness just doesn't fit into. It's a force, perhaps. Anyway, so the idea of matter to some extent expands, and maybe there's good reason for that as well, but despite that, I heard a famous thinker and, I guess, philosopher in science of uh, in, um, uh, mind. What is his name? Um, he teaches at Berkeley now. John Cyril, yeah. And he was interviewed on the same same channel there, and, he's, and he was discussing this. So they were interviewing scientists and religionists and so on. And, and he said that, I think that if we can just get rid of our religious baggage from the past, that we're so much burdened by this religious baggage... We could just retire that and start afresh. Then, given our developments in science today, I think that that within a thousand years we will be able to demonstrate that consciousness is not this, you know, soul idea or anything that there's anything supernatural. And I had such a chuckle on two points. I thought. If we could just get rid of religious baggage that makes us think that we're something, that we're important, that we're a soul, that there's more to life than what meets the eye, this confusion that we that we are. I mean, they want to say that somewhere in the brain this thing goes on and it causes this thing called consciousness which deludes us, whoever we are, into thinking that we are when it's there's nothing there's the lights are on, but there's really nobody home. <laughs> this is this is the idea, and I thought so. This is where you know that s- school of thought is largely preoccupied, and the religious idea, on the other hand, it kind of arises naturally in human life. Naturally in human life, out of the past, we find humans feel, as I said, intuitively that they're more, hmm? and. And and then their religious uh, ideologies that seek to 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 affirm that, hmm? right? That's a burden. He's thinking. I'm thinking it's quite burdensome to me to think to get to think that I'm that I don't exist. There's really nobody home there. This is oppressive. This is depressing, and of course. You know, there's no purpose to life. There's no meaning to life. And I thought this is a very artificial burden. And a thousand years. Well, modern science has been uh, around for a couple hundred years, and its ability to know, hmm, which is considerable, the means by that we can know through science is considerable, and it's expanding exponentially. Now, so if you were to take the past 200 years of science, now what we can do in, in, in 20 years of science, you could do in 200 years. 
Hmm? Or maybe two years. You could do in 200 years. So we want a thousand years of that kind of science. That's a long, long, long time. In other words, he was saying, we don't know anything about consciousness, if you really play it out. Hmm? We really don't know anything about it. And in the schools of neuro- neuroscience and philosophy of mind, there are a dozen or so different theories about what consciousness is, and they all argue completely with one another. They're pretty much complete disagreement with one another. We're not getting real far in trying to demonstrate that the subjective element in our of our existence, consciousness, is really matter. We're not getting very far. Um, and, on the other hand, there are examples of the Sukadev, of the Chaitanya, of the Christ, hmm? uh, the, the, the Muhammad, if you will, or the Buddha. And uh, I don't know everything about all the religions, so forgive me if I've left some out or mentioned the wrong people. But uh, but uh, there are, these people have made an impression on the world that will never, ever go away because they stood. Hmm? on the the ground of their faith. And faith here is not something that is a departure from reason. But faith is the eradication of doubt that allows them to stand with such courage, towering, and say the things they say to us about all that we could possibly be, all that we are, if we could only preoccupy ourselves with that which is meaningful, beginning with ourselves, consciousness, not matter, and doing that by way of connecting ourselves with our source. These people have changed the world forever. It will, this will never, ever go away. Never go away. And this this opposition to this, uh, this abuse, if you will, in my estimation, of, of reason, that is like an aberration. It, 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 will, it, will, it will come, it has come, it will, it will go away. Science, as I said, originally was born as a Christian, but born more of as a, as a religious Christian than an experiential Christian. Hmm? Think about it, because it was. A, and this is not something that's relative only to Christianity. As I said earlier, all the religions have a religious orientation and an experiential or mystical orientation. The religious orientation is supposed to bring us in the direction of the mystical experiential organization uh, orientation, but it, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we're drawn to a religion. I asked earlier why. Well, we met someone of religious character, and they, and they uh, largely, this is the reason, and they impressed us, and they, we, their faith this was contagious. Hmm? We were inspired. We went on to a meeting at the church or the temple, or we meditated, and we, got, we were drawn in for a moment, hmm? away from our taking tendency and the busyness of our mind to... To, to to touch the, what we really are and what we're really about, and it was extraordinary. Hmm? We we had a taste of the of the heart of the whole thing, and so therefore we attached ourselves to a certain structure that explained that and afforded that. Hmm? Other people had it in another structure and afforded it, and, and so forth. Then, because of our conditioning, hmm, we don't gravitate naturally towards the heart. We kind of gravitate in the other way. Therefore, it's called conversion. He had, she had a religious conversion. We had to convert them, bring them on this side. Hmm? They're moving naturally in another direction. You think about it. Is a tiger moving in a religious direction? No. Could you, would it be easy to convert her, her or him? No. 
and many humans are really dvipada pashu. We are two-legged animals. We are concerned with our animality. By the from the Hindu perspective, we've just come from animality into into humanity. Hmm? There's a, there's an animal aspect to us that's drawing upon us hmm? heavily. The other aspect is our subjective conscious self that's trying to get out and say there's more and so forth. So there's this two sides pulling, so we can be drawn in by a by a, a bearer of faith and experience, get some experience, adapt a particular structure, and then we gravitate towards the fringe of that and identify the religious experience with the structure. And therefore, if you don't wear the same mark on your forehead as I do, you don't wear the same robe, or you lay down on the ground to show respect rather than genuflecting as we used to do as Catholic boys on the altar, then... You're my enemy. <laughs> we'll go to war over that. Hmm? So, so this is where how religion sometimes, while designed to take us from the gross material animality to the refined and subtle reality of the spiritual, as an in-between ground, so to speak. Hmm? Some, because of our nature, we kind of gravitate towards the fringe of it and identify only with the externals of it. Hmm? And then we don't have a lot of love, we don't have a lot of wisdom, and we don't find a lot of sacrifice as we began. And this is this is why religion is not that popular, because many people in religion are religiously oriented in a way that's not conducive towards bringing them to a experiential orientation to spiritual life. Hmm? Which, you see, <laughs> the religious orientation is more concrete the mystical orientation is less concrete. It's more subtle. As I said, it's a realm kind of in between the material, animalistic life. In other words, we get religious laws hmm, that take us away from animality. You don't do this in our religion, and you don't do that, and this you do do, and there are these r- rules and so forth. These rules are kind of meant to try to take us away from animality. They're really what re- what the religious orientation is really trying to do is trying to posit moral principles that will come out at different times as moral laws relative to the world. The world changes. So moral laws will also change in pursuit of fulfilling the moral principle that religious advocate. But we identify with the laws sometimes in ways that are... And so theologians... And then more so, mystics, experiencers, they want to like edit it, so to speak, and and get to the spirit of the idea, and so forth. But a lot of people aren't, you know, um, going at that pace, and and so we find someone's attached to an old law that doesn't even make any sense in the Hindu, you know, dogma, and uh, there aren't even people like that anymore on the planet, and 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 and. Uh, the conditions were entirely different and so forth, uh, and we want to apply it to an entirely different situation. This is a total abuse of religion and a, and a, and a, a misunderstanding of a, of a principle. Hmm? And so this goes on everywhere. It's, a, you know, it's to one extent or another what we call religious fanaticism, and we may all be possessed of it to the extent that we don't have real experience. Hmm? We'll, we'll naturally gravitate towards that middle ground. It can be 
can be counterproductive. It's meant to gradually take us. It's 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 not beastly. Hmm? It's kind of quasi spiritual. It's religious. After all, religion's about loving God. And if you love God, then you're going to love everything that's connected with God, right? So it's about a universal love at the same time. Hmm? And love does not have any does not answer to law. What we hear about the in the Christian tradition, we hear from the box of law came what the the what do they call it the the new the New Testament is a testament of love. Hmm? We have an same thing in the Hindu tradition. From the Veda hmm, comes the Bhagwat. The Bhagwat is like the New Testament. It's a total doctrine of divine love. Radha Krishna, Bhupi Bhava. So and 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 and, and then the, the laws, if you can if you can come under that, bhakti. Hmm? These other lower laws that are meant to keep you from animality, they're released. You've got that is the idea. Hmm? So law is kind of a breakdown of love. I'll give you an example. Let's say um you and I live together. Madhav and I are sharing a room. So we're friends and all. And as it turns out, Madhava really likes to listen to Indian music late at night. And I like to sleep at night. And he likes to get up late and I like to get up early. And then there's things that I do also that that just don't work with Madhava's psychology. So to salvage the situation, because we're friends, we say, okay, let's make a list of rules. Okay, you'll turn the music off by 10 o'clock and I won't get up before six o'clock and turn the lights on. And so then we post the rules on the wall and we agree to abide by all those. We salvage the situation. It's kind of a a, a, a rule-oriented friendship and, and, and love. If we were in love with one another, then his desires would be, I would make them mine. He would make mine his. I would become him. He would become me so to speak. You and I would become we. Hmm? It's not that both of us would disappear, but in a dynamic sense, we would have a union. This kind of union we want with God. Hmm? A oneness in purpose, a oneness in desire, and enough difference for there to be reciprocal dealings between the God and ourself that constitute love. Hmm? So religious orientation is a law kind of abiding and morality after all is only for people who are you know who need it <laughs> think about it laws are for people who need them if you don't love you don't need the laws hmm? but don't pretend that you're a lover when you need them. When, you, when you're not that's another thing hmm? you can say yes yeah I like that idea that sounds great you know, love is beyond law so I'm a lover but it means something there's something meant here to, to love hmm? to love means that you have to not be engaged in what constitutes not loving. And not loving means taking, exploiting. The body itself is making demands on us. We have some license to meet them, but not beyond a certain limit that we encroach upon others. Hmm? As much as we are doing that, we are not loving. We need law to curb us in. Hmm? You see... 
it's difficult to be a giver when we ourselves are attached to something, identified with something that has needs. The self doesn't need, consciousness doesn't need, it's eternal. Hmm? The body needs, I've identified with it, it has needs, so I'm working for them. Hmm? And its needs are, in one sense, if you give it free reign, unlimited. The more it takes, you know, eat to your full satisfaction. What? Satisfaction of my belly or my tongue? Which will it be? The belly is full. The tongue says, take more. Hmm? So the senses that are demanding on us, they're never satisfied. Next morning you're hungry again. Doesn't matter. Food, food, food distribution will never solve the hunger problem. And I don't mean we shouldn't feed hungry people, but don't be in an illusion to think that you'll stop hunger by feeding people. Hmm? No. Hmm. But religion talks about it. Spirituality talks about how to end the hunger problem. To understand what is what is the soul, what is consciousness. Hmm? So we have to learn how to use the religion, if you will, the laws, in a dynamic way. We have to see them in terms of time and place and explain them according to our time and place in such a way that they actually have effect. And the effect should be that we're taken from a religious orientation to a spiritual, what I want to say, experiential orientation. And in that orientation, from the more concrete, if you will, religious orientation, whereas I have these rules, I follow them, I dress like this, I say this, I don't say that, I say it at this time, not at that time. There's a purpose to all of this. Hmm? Hmm? And we, and it doesn't. if you don't know the purpose, it kind of looks stupid at a certain point. Hmm? They're bowing down over there like that seven times a day, you know. Are they crazy? And these people are doing it this way and that way, and they argue with one another. And you know, hmm? it has a purpose. If you do it right with good guidance, then we can do it right. Then it will take you to what to a, from a concrete kind of religious idea. And what is religion? It's love of God. And love is not concrete; it's fluid. Hmm? It's moving like a like the current of a river, hmm? always with nuances. And, and, and it's 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 Love is, is disconcerting. You see? It's not like something you can hold on to. Okay. We're standing still now. No, it's moving constantly. Spiritual life is not, is not, don't look for spiritual life by way of looking for somebody to think for you. I'm going to join a religion because they, they got all the thoughts and I just, just don't have to think anymore. No, you don't have to think. You have to think why the, those laws are there, why those rules, what this purpose behind them is. And as you go in the spiritual direction of really experiencing, experiencing the self, you'll find, whoa, <laughs> there's a lot of gray out here. It's not black and it's white. The problem with a black and white orientation in the worst case scenario, which is what we find in many religious people, is that not only are they thinking in terms of black and white, but they end up thinking that white is black and black is white. Hmm? Never rather than wisdom in religious people often we find ignorance hmm? not only in superstition rather than love we find hate isn't it rather than sacrificing we find taking and exploitation and religion to get things only hmm? when we move from a religious orientation to a spiritual orientation naturally and happily then we find this is comforting in the midst of its being disconcerting, it's like in a, you know, it's like, wow, I'm on a journey. It's exciting, and I don't know where I'm going, 
but I know it, it feels good. I'm going in the right place. Where will take me next? I cannot say. You know, the life of the missionary. Where we will go next? What will happen? Hmm? Hmm? So, when we then go to the ex- experiential, uh, if you will, mystical orientation of the different traditions, we have discussions and debates, but they don't come to like warring factions. We don't find the Sufis fighting with the, the Vedantins, and um, we don't find the Christian saints like uh, Mother Teresa was living in Calcutta dressed in a sari, hmm? um, for example, from the Catholic tradition. And uh, they, they they differ, but they realize we have more in common than we than than people think. Most people, most most of our constituents think we have more in common. God is bigger than whatever name we can give him. And every religion is telling this. Bigger than whatever name we can give, bigger whatever. Uh, some religions may afford greater penetration into that big subject than another. And then again, hmm, we may all have our place in relation to that big subject that's best for us. Hmm? So which is better? Hmm? If you can say... Here's transcendence and the realm of God. And some people can go right next to God and be his first-hand servant. And other people will be out here mowing his lawn or whatever, you know. But everybody has that place where they feel the best, where God wants to accept service from them as a friend, as a lover, as a well-wisher even it could be. Hmm? Subject Their subjective reality, that's best for them. Hmm? So when we think along these lines, we can help to harmonize these differences of religion that are out and about today that 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 cause them to be lacking as we began in in sacrifice in wisdom and in in love but to be rather uh, to become full of these three this will this this therefore the onus is on us we are all religious people here to some extent i would imagine that's why we hear the onus is on us to really go in this direction and exemplify this because those saints that have that have developed, if you will, that religious traditions have developed around, hmm? they went the distance, hmm? and, and they're, they are preserving the whole thing despite us. Hmm? Their example just just doesn't go away. If you examine it carefully, of course you can try to go away and say, it's just, oh, people just made a myth about him and so on and so forth. So therefore, all the more reason, we need to become saints. That's the idea. I remember once as a young young boy... Young man, I was in the temple and, and 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 I was chanting before the deity in Los Angeles and chanting the names of God like on a rosary. We have like a rosary course in our tradition, chanting the names of God like you know they have the Jesus prayer in some Catholic traditions or in, I think in the Islamic tradition they have ninety nine names of God and they have a rosary that they chant on. So anyway, that's another point, right? Name of God. Every religion says it's either it's too sacred to utter, or or, or it's, it's it's it has inherent sacred power. This is actually an interesting, as a side point, um, point that religions can come together on. The name of God has sacred power, inherent power, and um, so we get together and sing like we're doing here. Uh, it might be in a different language sometimes, but. Uh, so, at any rate, my point is that we then have to become such examples. I was chanting before the deity, and 
And and the deity said to me, you know, you have to become a pure soul. And it was like, whoa, yeah, that's what this is about, isn't it? You have to become a pure devotee of Krishna, of me. You. I thought, oh, my God. Yes, that's we all, this is what, this is what, it's not somebody else will do it, and I'll just tag along, something like that. We give you all the help you need, but you have to fly in the sky of your spiritual aspirations by taking all that help. And there's a lot of help, believe me. There's a lot of help if you want to avail yourself of it. And you should. Because again, this is the real purpose of human life. So, are there any questions? Yes. Yeah. And then later on, science came along, and actually now they figure that the sun's moving, we're moving, we're going around the sun, and the sun's going around us. And that's actually a mathematical fact. Uh huh. I was kind of funny. We were talking about science. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 And then if you take that to the other extreme of quantum mechanics, where they actually understand that there is a thing called consciousness mm-hmm. that affects everything you do. Mm-hmm. Well, they don't think there is one. There are some good scientists, though, uh, few, but uh, uh, who, I don't mean there are only a few good scientists. There's a lot of good scientists, but a few um, scientists who are good scientists that have started to look at the mind-brain conundrum, is it? Conundrum, Conundrum, yeah. Conundrum. Um, from a quantum perspective. Because everybody in science of mind and philosophy of mind is looking at it from a classical physical point of view, Newtonian point of view, rather than a quantum point of view. So if there is uh, uh, room for for looking at it from a quantum point of view, and from that point of view, some, like like, um, Henry Stapp, to, to, to name one at Berkeley, he has posited a theory, and it's just a theory, like every other theory out there, materialistic theory about consciousness, but it has sufficient empirical data to be credible. Hmm? And the implications of it are is that consciousness is a non-material reality that has will and impacts the world. Hmm? In quantum, we we don't find physics. We don't find a, a closed system. So to apply that, like in uh, Newtonian classical physics worldview. So it's a big topic, obviously, and I'm hardly an expert on it. But the point being that we should be heartened, those who feel like we feel, that there is, there are people who can credibly, from a scientific point of view, make a case as credible, if you will, as others who want to posit, based on empirical evidence, that consciousness is matter. They can posit that consciousness is is uh, non-material. That's interesting, developing kind of field. So you figure, well, heck, if everybody feels that way anyway, and somebody can come up with a theory that has as much empirical data as another one that supports the idea, well, 
go with that. It's a happier idea. Hmm? Of course, if it means that you can't do everything that you, your senses might want you to do, then that's going to make you unhappy. But that doing that won't make you happy. And that's a scientifically demonstrable fact. Hmm? There's a few facts to religion there. That's one of them. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I was just wondering if um, the sort of idea of, you know, with all the recognizing that the foundation of all the religions that we're all striving to be, you know, human overcome sort of our animal self and really manifest a, a, a human uh, orientation in the world, something more spiritual, more enlightened. Various, we all have various words for it. Um, how, you know, if you have any insight, I guess, or, or just guidance, you know, in some ways it feels like it, sometimes we get kind of, like you were mentioning, attached to the religion um, as an ends rather than a means. Mm-hmm. And how is it we can go about really helping to, to, to stay oriented towards, towards the ends that sort of transcend and this ability for folks of various religions and to be able to really work, you know, cooperatively to you know, some, you know, ultimate ends of, of creating a loving society or just that we all long to do, but then we get kind of held back because these different and means and, you know, you call yourself something that I don't call myself, you know, how, how can we, you know, like in this, you know, community here in the Triangle of North Carolina begin to to behave differently, to bring about more, uh, and, and I just, I think, when we look at religion and, and I think science as well being really sort of in the grips of materialism, Right, so how to get beyond that. I think that uh, in my experience, I'll just speak from my own experience, the best way is to have association of people who are experiencing the mystical side of, and there's not, you know, there may be less of them, but they're they're around. We should invite them to our homes and and have these kind of uh, discussions. So we call it in Hinduism, sadhu sangha, to associate with, People who have real, tangible, deep spiritual experience that causes them to, that enables them to see beyond the different um, different uh, roadmaps, if you will, you know, to the goal and what they're, what the, what what they're, what is being said here is being said here in different language. Those kinds of people having their company uh, is is most powerful. That will that will. Uh, it's just like. I've given an example before of cooking. It's a gradual thing, but the food has to be on the stove, right? To cook gradually, so that stove, the fire, if you, that will keep pushing us in that direction, is people who have more experience than ourselves. Our material tendency is to be comfortable with people who know less than us. But if we want to do good for ourselves spiritually or even materially, we should associate with people who know more than us and have more experience. And I'm the first to think that there are people who have more experience than me, so I readily look, you know, for that, uh, and I recommend it to others. Yes. Well, you were talking at one point about certain religions that God's name is too, too holy to even utter, and how, um, how, how in these religions we can we we know that there's very little understanding about God's qualities because if you can't utter His name, you can't know who He is. So how is it that in, in, in a simple sort of way that um, the, the, the um, gift of the Vaishnavas, this name of God, how is this, how is this helping us to understand um, the qualities of God? Because if God doesn't have qualities, we can't relate. So 
how is his holy name or the name of God um, helping us understand his qualities, his form, his activities? Well, there's a simple answer to that, but before I, 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 I give it, I think that it's worth saying that those who feel that that um, God cannot be uh, described in words, that words don't do justice to God, and as a result of that become silent, are, are wise people. I mean, I think there's more to it than that, as I've said, but if they're wise, some, um, some f- friends of mine, disciples of, co-disciples of, of our guru many, many years ago, went to a man who was a yogi who was silent. He had a vow of silence. He hadn't spoken for many years. And that's very powerful, actually. Hmm? But anyway, they went to him and they said that um, we think that it's better only to speak about Krishna, a name for God, than to be silent. They challenged him. And so he had a little slate, you know, where he would write something. And he said, he wrote, is that what you do? <laughs> he was smart, you understand. They talked about all kinds of things, not just God. Hmm? Might better be silent. <laughs> Stop talking about other things. Yeah. So it was, it was. Is that saying better to be silent? Better to be uh, silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not good to be proud. <laughs> also, so um, they came and told me. I said, "Oh, you should have told him." No, but our guru does only speaks. So. <laughs> Come and meet him, and humbly, you know, he probably would have come. But otherwise, uh, the the idea that that the um, that there is a divine logos, a name of God, um, and that by uttering that or chanting that, we can come to know more comprehensively about God, a, a God with qualities, and you know, rather than no material qualities, you know, all, all unlimited, whatever, spiritual qualities, um, I think is, uh, is a good idea. It makes a lot of sense. You know, very simply in as much as there's, there's, you know, they say, what's in a name? Well, there's quite a bit in a name. So they say, did you get his name? You know, did you get his name? In these days, if you get their social security number, then it's it. You've got their bank account and everything. The whole, it's they called identity theft. Right, so, so the identity it, the, 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 in, in 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 graphics, graphic arts, um, one of the most difficult things to do is to make a logo. Hmm? It's a simple little little thing, but you want to incorporate the entire essence of the business into a tiny little symbol. Is the idea? Hmm? So it's a real, real task. It looks like just make us a logo, you know. So, but, so the idea like this of the logos, divine logos, the name of God is something like that, that everything is packed within that. All the qualities of the Godhead, all the the, the leelas, the gunarupa nam, nam, you know, nam from nam, within nam, the name is, a, is the guna, the qualities of the Godhead, and the, the form of the Godhead, the leela of the Godhead. Hmm? And in our tradition it's such that by chanting the name of God, what will happen is, by chanting the name of God, then certain qualities in time, as the heart becomes purified of other wants and so forth, certain qualities of God will start to manifest in the mind. 
These will be certain qualities of God that correspond to a budding relationship with God that's that's coming even before you know it. Like those who love, in our tradition, Krishna as a friend, there are certain qualities of Krishna that stand out to them. Or they love him as a lover, then the certain qualities stand out. These will start to manifest in the mind. Hmm? First, the, the, the form will come. You chant the name and the form will come. You will be able to... Uh, glimpse the form of God, and at least it will mean you will see the deity symbolic representation of God as if he's right there. Hmm? Hmm? And one with the, with, with the name. The qualities will come in the mind, and then the leelas will come, the activities. The life of God will come in the heart. Hmm? This is a progression. And so within the context of nam, we do uh, nam smarnam, like rosary of the name, meditation on the name, that will develop naturally into gunasmarnam in the context of chanting the name. The qualities will be contemplated, not artificially, but naturally. Then uh, rupsmarnam, I said, the form of God, gunasmarnam and lilasmarnam. This is a development. So there's a lot in the name. What's in a name? A lot, something like that. That's a kind of simple explanation. Uh, so if God was to make himself available to us in the most condensed form... Is the idea, and we all, you know, everyone's talking, and everyone's hearing. That's how we get everything done, practically. You ask for something, you get an answer, a question. Bhagavatam Sukadeva, when he began to speak, that boy, naked boy, he said, "What did he say?" He said, mm, second candle of Bhagavatam begins with his speech." He said, "Anyway, there are humans. There are there are thousands of questions in human society." Hmm? In, well, in all societies, the birds are chirping, you know, and, and that's how they get. Or, and then the worm is speaking, and, and, and uh, <laughs> they find one another, <laughs> and so on. So, you know, there's thousands and thousands of questions in human society. So, we're all hearing and we're all chanting, in effect. That's how we accomplish so many things. And so, to come in a, uh, in, a in a in a sound, if you will. In a name, in a divine logos. This is a very condensed way, a very generous way also that he can come because one can vibrate the name of God, others can hear, even if they weren't interested, perhaps become interested. So on. Yes, Joe, ma'am. Um, you, you talk about the divine name of God and, and, and vibrating it. But of course, we don't just hear that through our ears, we actually absorb it as well. Because vibration, we're vibrational beings. Um, and as scientists that are moving into that whole area as well, they're unfortunately using it for um, uh, crowd control. Uh, they use uh, very, very low sound vibration, and it causes people to, to, uh, to be sick. So, so we're talking about sound vibration of God, the logos. It actually affects us, not just through our ears, but through our whole body. Mm-hmm. That's right. Very nice point. Yes. Uh, to to this, I'm sorry to you know, know your name, but to her point, the significance of, of creating within, she's saying her local area, people have different viewpoints of what is their realm of trying to influence people with their spirituality. Uh, you'd spoken earlier in, in recently about the, making a distinction uh, 
between developing ourselves and outreach, which is more significant for someone? The outreach to the community of spirituality or the inreach? Yeah, I think the answer to that is as much as outreach helps you to reach within, then it's more important. As much as reaching within enables you to reach out, then reaching within is important. I mean, there it's like you know the chicken and the egg kind of a thing in a sense, the seed and the tree. I mean, there is a point where, um, first of all, I think you have to reach in. Someone reaches out to you, hmm? right? And so that causes you to reach within, think deeply, and so forth. And as you do, then the tendency would be to want to share that, or you'll have to share it, because it's causing you to think and act in a different way, and people need explanations. You know, you suddenly became a vegetarian, for example, and you've got to explain it to your family. So you have the outreach. So inward reach causes outreach, and at the same time, outreach... When you hear yourself talking about the things that you are churning with inside of you and telling them, for example, to another, then it has a tendency to cause you to think, yeah, that's what I think. I believe that. I do. Um, yes, uh, it has a confirming kind of a, it kind of solidifies what you've already heard, if you will, the chanting, if you will solidifies what you've heard. So it, it, it also is conducive to inner life. Therefore, you have statements, for example, in our tradition of Bhaktisiddhanta, kirtana prabhavi smarana svabhavi. The kirtana, the outreach, will foster the inner reach. So we should see that our outreach is doing that, not that in the name of outreach we're saving all kinds of people at the loss of our own self. And people can get into that, so to speak, and think, I'm too busy saving others and, you know, well, you, know, you can only save others, so to speak, if you want to use that language, uh, as much as you've been saved yourself. So the the outreach should foster the inreach. So you see, if, if my preoccupation with outreach is giving me more interest in, in, in my own inner culture and paying attention to that and so forth, then you have a good, um, good balance. And if you're Inner, inner reach is is fruitful, so to speak, then it will cause an overflowing. It may stop you from overflowing at a certain point also. It may stop you. It may, But that will attract many people <laughs> at the same time. You follow? Hmm? Yeah, or like, um, you know, someone like, uh, you know, the Avadut, so to speak, he, he's... He's so within that that his outside is coming out without trying, and people can see this is an extraordinary person. We should take advantage of him. So spiritual spirituality will you know allow itself to be taken advantage of. It's beyond us. So outreach is kind of beyond us. Also, it's 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 an inspiration from inner reach. So you know, I'm sorry, I'm giving you no answer, <laughs> which is better. That's kind of you kind of have to gauge that and see. There's a there can be a point as I say where outreach. I've seen it happen many times, is is done at the cost of inward reach. And there may be also inward reach that's at the cost of outreach. That means you're not really getting anything from it, and so you're not really excited to, to share it. Love wants to share itself as much as at times it may have to retreat and 
to privacy as well when others can't appreciate. So you have to tell your temperature or you can get some, a good doctor to help you tell your temperature uh, in that regard. So, yes? Raj, could you give an example of when we might think white is black and black is white? Well, what I mean by that is that uh, in, in a very basic sense is, you know, you, you might find a religious person hating another person um, who's, uh, rather than loving and being compassionate for a person's condition, l- let's say you think, you know, somebody's not supposed to be doing something, and you're doing it, because it's, you're following their religion. They're not doing it, and so, you know, people become hateful in the name of religion, which is, you know, supposed to be about love. Hmm? Just to use a crude example, that kind of thing happens. You see people... Acting, acting in an opposite way, and and then then other people say, "Who wants religion?" Just see, you know, supposed to love, and they're hating. So that that happens. Yes, sir. Do we need to worship God? And if answer is no, uh, then I don't have the second question. But if answer is yes, and why? Then do we need to worship God publicly? We, hopefully we have a necessity to worship God. Some people feel they have no necessity to worship God and they've reasoned that away. Other people feel they do have a necessity to worship God. But I would like to ask you to consider whether worship is the best word. Um, And whether God exists. So if God exists, then... Then, okay, okay, okay. So, okay. So, do we need to worship him or her, our neutral gender? And, and if so, yes, why? If I would like to hear why, then why do we need to worship publicly? Because I think that's what public worshiping has. Okay. So, no, you don't have to. It's not a law. You don't have to worship God. How's that? Even God says you don't have to worship. But what is worship? So worship is really an expression of love. Worship is something where we, where there's an object of worship and then there's the worshiper, right? There's the object of worship and the worshiper. And the worshiper kind of communicates with the worshipped by sending worship that way. The, the culmination of this exercise hmm, of worship does away with worship because the gap between the object of my love and myself is bridged. Hmm? Through worship, the object of love and the lover and the bridge or the gap between the two is is bridged. So love means becoming one. I become one with you. Hmm? If I love you, I say, what is your name? Narayan. And I are one. He and I are one. There's still you and there's still me, but we're one in purpose. What he says, I agree. We're on the same page. We're in the same sentence. Hmm? We're in the same, you know, <laughs> line and so forth. So, worship is, 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 is a crude 
if you will, way of loving. But we have to begin somewhere. Hmm? How valuable is love? Hmm? What is more important, knowledge or love? We would think that love is more important than knowledge, and love, for that matter, is the highest knowledge. This is what Krishna teaches in the Gita. He says in the ninth chapter, this is the book about Rajavidya, the chapter about Rajavidya, the king of knowledge. And what does he say that the king of knowledge is? Manmana, bhava madbhakto, madhyajimam namaskuru. Love me, be my devotee. This is the highest knowledge, what he says in the chapter. You study it. <laughs> Beginning, he says, this is the verse, this is the chapter about the highest knowledge. In the end, he says, this is what it comes to. Manmana, bhava madbhakto, madhyajimam namaskuru. Love is a kind of knowledge. It's a super kind of knowledge, actually. It's the most complete way of knowing because if you love someone, try it. They will tell you all their secrets. If you know someone, they may not tell you all their secrets. I may know someone. That's one thing. I know President Obama. Obama. I mean, to some extent. I could pick him out and I see his picture. I know him. But... What is his wife's name? Michelle. What does she know? What does she call him? What names does she have for him? She knows all his secrets. You will never know all the secrets of the president just by knowing him, by acknowledging him, and so forth, but by loving him. This is the, na- this is the power of love. Hmm? If you love someone, they will tell you all their secrets. So that means love is the super way of knowing. And loving constitutes the the culmination of knowing. Hmm? You don't have to love God. But if you want to get close to God, then loving is a better way than than simply knowing. Hmm? I accepted that fact. I said God is absolute truth. Yeah. That is not the question. Yeah. I mean, him, that's it. Why do you need to show this to the world? Publicly. Now, now we go to that part. So... Why do we have to show it publicly? We don't have to show it publicly. But the fact is that love has, by its very nature, tends to want to share itself. So when you actually love God, there's love is constitutes reciprocal dealings. So when you actually love God, there's reciprocation. We call it ecstasy. When you actually love God, and you know, we may practice loving God, hmm? we may do the rituals and so forth, but to actually, we may give the brupi, we may give the arati and light and this and that and so forth, but to actually give your heart, that's not so easy. Hmm? Our heart is somewhat atrophied, it has to melt. Hmm? So, when we actually love, it means other things have to come out of our hearts that we're loving and attached to. Hmm? When that's all gone, we can really begin to love. So we need an exercise that will help us empty the heart out. So we start somewhere. We give things to God. We think, well, God doesn't need anything. Why should I give him anything? God's the most wealthy. Why should I give my rupee to God? Why should I give my dollar to God? And build a big temple. What is the point? God needs a temple. We should feed the poor people. Well, you can think like that. But the point is, you like money. <laughs> you want money. <laughs> and when you want something that you can't keep, that is a problem for you. So we give money so that we can become free hmm, from the attachments and the necessities that we've created in our mind. Hmm. So when we give 
things to God, those things are kind of extensions of ourself. It's my money, it's my whatever that I gave. Hmm? I kind of go there to God. But ultimately, when we give, which is worship to God, hmm, we give, we realize more important than giving the things is giving me. Hmm? I'm not a thing. So, give my heart, my full consciousness. I go on the altar. Not just I put things on the altar and I remain over here, worshiping, throwing things over to God. Take that. You can have that. Okay, I'll give you this too. Kind of bargaining with God, so to speak. You know, just let me keep a few, <laughs> something like that. Eventually we see we're cornered. The fact of the matter is we should give everything to God. I'm not to put myself on the altar. I'm to be sacrificed. So when we do that, we get reciprocation. As much as you give, as much as the God is going to reciprocate. When you get knowledge through giving, hmm, then you start to give more. You find the giving is the getting. You give yourself. You get ecstasy. Bhava. Now when you get bhava, what do you do? You cannot contain yourself. You may go out and chant in public. <laughs> it's possible. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was chanted the name. He fell on the ground. Hmm? He was doing publicly. He had to do it publicly. You understand? Because there was no difference between his private life and his public life. Hmm? Now we we think we have a difference between our public life and our private life. But actual spiritual life is to make no difference between public and private life because the object of our worship is actually universal. You may make a little altar and put him in a little corner. There he is. He has his place. This is Murti, the deity I'm worshiping here. And I close the door and the rest of my life goes on. Every now and then I open it. You see? <laughs> but if one day I open that and I see, if I worship that object of love privately and properly, we'll find, I'll find that the object of my love that is localized actually is universal. Hmm? Why do I fall from my religious standards? Because I do not see, for example, the universality of my deity. I think I wouldn't do that in the temple, but maybe if I'm not in the temple, I might do that. Hmm? But when you, whatever you would only do in front of God, you only do everywhere. Hmm? You see, then your private life becomes your public life. So, so I would suggest you start privately. And if you end up then making no difference between private and public life, then your life has become fully successful. And you love God inside and outside. So, with that we should chant the holy name of Krishna. Go with Premanandi. Oh.